Would you love me if I forgot your birthday Gave your shoes away, refused to shave Would you love me if I blew up a deli Got a big fat belly and became real smelly Would you love me if I wore a tutu Rode a kangaroo with a beehive hairdo Would you love me if I put a big rock In the toe of your sock and forced you to walk Can't you see I love you I'm crazy about you, babe Don't you leave me, sweetie I'm coming right away Would you love me if I as big as a whale Grew a great green tail Left slime like a snail Would you love me if I took off my clothes Stuck a garden hose way up my nose Would you love me if I had a hundred fingers Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Mac in the Movies, where I look at everything from Art House to Grindhouse. On this episode, we will be taking a look at the animated insanity of independent filmmaker Bill Plimpton, plus a new series by John and myself called What a Year, and we'll share our favorite films of 1983. Before we look at the films, let's look at the man himself. Bill Plimpton was born on April 30th, 1946, in Portland, Oregon. He was raised in an Oregon City farm along with five siblings. He would study graphic design at the Portland State University from 1964 to 1968. In 68, he transferred to New York City's School of Visual Arts. He graduated a year later. From the late 60s to the 1980s, Plimpton's cartoons were featured in numerous publications ranging from the New York Times, Vogue, Rolling Stone, Penthouse, and National Lampoon. In the mid-1980s, he wanted to expand into animation. In 1988, he made the animated short, Your Face, featuring a song by collaborator Maureen McElheron, a name you'll hear a lot in this episode. The short garnered an Academy Award nomination in the animated short film category. Animated work would be frequently used in television, MTV, Liquid Television, Cartoon Sushi, all prominently showcasing his work. I remember first seeing Plimpton's work on the sketch comedy show The Edge. Listen to this cast. Julie Brown, Jennifer Aniston, Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants, and Wayne Knight, Newman from Seinfeld, a solid group of comedic talents. In 1992, he released his first feature film, The Tune. Before we look at the films, I actually have a Bill Plimpton story. This was around 2002-2003. I had just joined the newspaper of my undergrad school, The Ascent, at Damon College. During my time as a contributor, I had the pleasure of interviewing, via email, Bruce Campbell and Claudio Simonetti of Goblin. My first interview for the newspaper was with Bill Plimpton. I had visited his website and called the phone number on the contact page. His assistant answered. I introduced myself and I asked if I could interview Mr. Plimpton. I was expecting the assistant to give me a day and time that would fit in his schedule. Nope, I was connected right into Mr. Plimpton's studio. When he answered the phone, I panicked and my anxiety skyrocketed. I clearly caught him at a busy time because he wasn't happy when I was on the phone with him. In my panic, I didn't have the sense to apologize. I got three questions in when I ended the session. I was absolutely embarrassed. A few days later, I emailed him to apologize for my lack of professionalism and for being a journalistic greenhorn. He gave me a day and time he was free for me to interview him. After the awkward incident, the second interview went very well. Years later, I would update my Damon articles and sell them to Penny Blood magazine and was paid $90 for them, making me an officially published writer. Okay, with that uh, anecdote out of the way, uh, let's go ahead and dive into the movies. We got movies!
is a collection of Bill Plimpton animated shorts. Tubi features his shorts going back to Lucas the Ear of Corn, to some of his more recent offerings, Santa the Fascist Years, and The Loneliest Stoplight. Highlights include Boomtown, One of Those Days, 25 Ways to Quit Smoking, and How to Kiss. There are a number of vignettes that were from his feature film, The Tune, which I will discuss later. I had the DVD that was released in 1992, What the DVD contains that Tubi doesn't was his college animated short for the Portland State University yearbook. There was also his commercials for Sugar Delight featuring the unforgettable voice of Emo Phillips, Trivial Pursuit, and his work for MTV. feature on either Tubi or the DVD is the Oscar-nominated short Your Face. This gem does for hand-drawn animation what the music video for Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer did for stop-motion animation. You will be mesmerized by this piece of motion art. I recommend checking out either the digital or physical media uh, so you can be uh, familiar with his distinct style of animation. Physical copies of Plimptoons are still reasonably priced between $4 and $15 on eBay, surprisingly enough. I would recommend buying from Plimptoons' website since all the sales would go to him, but uh, Plimptoons is currently out of stock on his website. You left me for the open road Where you went I didn't know But now you say you're back to stay Isn't it good again? Isn't it right again? When you were gone, I'd count the days and cry the lonely nights away. Oh, promise me you'll never leave. Isn't it good again? Isn't it right again? And oh. is a struggling songwriter. Mr. Mega is impatiently awaiting Dell's next song. Dell has less than an hour to deliver the song to Mr. Mega's office or he's fired, losing his job and his office sweetheart, Dee Dee. Dell finishes the song and makes his way to Mr. Mega's office. On the way, he gets lost and ends up in the town of Flooby Nooby. He's greeted by the mayor and encounters strange sights like a dog that impersonates Elvis, a taxi driver without a nose, and a singing waitress at a diner. Bill Plimpton's animation is great, especially for his first feature film, but the real star of the film is the music of Maureen McElheron. 
Her catchy tunes are what keeps up the energy for the tune. Dig My Do, Isn't It Good, No Nose Blues, Dancing All Day, all earworms that'll stick with you long after the movie is over. All of the music in this film was featured in the 2B digital stream for Plimtoons. I found the tune to be similar to the Danny Kaye classic, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. The song vignettes offer a similar feel to the dream sequences where Danny Kaye's imagination runs away with him. Unlike the latter feature film efforts by Bill Plimpton, this film is perfect family viewing. The one sequence that didn't work for me was when two men engage in three Stoogian slapstick with slaps and eye pokes. If the moment lasted only a minute, that would have been fine, but it runs on for a good three minutes. But for an hour and nine minute film, it doesn't even remotely bring down the film as a whole. The tune is a fun, enjoyable music journey, a perfect pairing of the color pencil style of Bill Plimpton with the songwriting talent of Maureen McElheron. The film is a great introduction to those new to Bill Plimpton. Sally, the DVD is not available on his website, uh, but there is Tubi, and physical copies are still reasonably priced between $11 and $17 on Amazon. How'd you get to be so cute? Did you buy it like a suit? Were you hopping, shopping, bopping, mopping? Ooh, were you spending lots of loot? How'd you get so cute? How'd you get to be so hot? Did you pop out on the spot? Or did you sow it, mow it, blow it, show it, grow it, ooh, like a crop? How'd you get so hot? the beauty that is you oh i love it so i'm lost in your dream world that's why i want to know yeah how'd you get to be so buff i want to eat all your stuff were you baking shaking making flaking caking baby i'm in love I Married a Strange Person opens with two birds having comedic sex in midair, interspersed with quotes by Pablo Picasso and Hermann Goering. Both quotes decry the enemies of creativity, good taste, and culture. This intro should give you an indication of what you're in for. When the birds climax, they fall and land on a SmileCorp TV satellite dish, sending a beam into the back of the neck of average citizen Grant Boyer. A time later, Grant Boyer is married to Carrie. They get intimate, and soon bizarre things start to happen, not just to them, but to their neighbors and with Carrie's parents. Anthropomorphic grass attacks his lawn-mowing neighbor. Bugs infest the mother-in-law while the father becomes a one-man Dixie Jazz band. sex, Grant turns Carrie's breasts into balloon animals. SmileCore is a major TV network dealing with low ratings. The director notices Grant when he appears on a TV show and the gland that gives Grant his power. The director wants that gland for himself and uses the powers for his benefit. He even goes as far as to bring in his private army to get the gland. The best way to describe this film to people who haven't seen it It's Bill Plimpton using violence in the same over-the-top fashion as Sam Raimi with Evil Dead 2 or Peter Jackson with Bad Taste. In an Al Jazeera interview, Plimpton cited Peter Jackson as being an influence for I Married a Strange Person. Even Plimpton's use of sex is so ridiculous you can't help but laugh at it. Approach I Married a Strange Person with that mindset and you will enjoy it. Maureen McElleron continues to provide memorable music for Plimpton's film. How'd you get so cute? Would you love me? I can't begin to tell you how long the SmileCore theme song has been stuck in my head. (laughs) 
This is the first film that relies on dialogue with limited music compared to the tune. The voice acting is passable, but the unpredictable nature of Plimpton's animation will keep you invested in the film, as do the songs by Miguel Haran. I Married a Strange Person is a crude celebration of sex and violence. Imagine the mask with Jim Carrey by way of Robert Crumb. That is this film in a nutshell. The DVD is still available on his website. On Amazon, a few copies are still available for between $13 to opens in the present with a news reporter at the site of a spaceship landing. She mentions that a chipmunk has exited the ship. Suddenly there is a a panic as mysterious forces attack the public. Twenty years earlier, an astronaut, Earl Jensen, is sent into space. However, his ship is sabotaged by Dr. Frubar, the director of the launch. Frubar uses Jensen as a means to raise funds for the space program. While not saying it out loud, Jensen's tone in reading his farewell oozes with a demand for retribution. Back to the present, Earl's daughter, Josie, is still searching for her father. One night, she happens to see her father's vessel in her telescope. She notifies the space program, but Frubar, now a stooge for corporate interests, wants the vessel destroyed. The vessel makes it back to Earth safely. Earl exits, much to the joy of Josie and to the chagrin of Frubar. Earl tells his story of meeting a race of beings shaped like noses who were battling a race of eyeballs. No one believes him until a nose creature exits his same vessel. There is a press conference with Earl, Josie, the nose creature, and the president. Now we're back to the point in time of the pre-credits sequence. The nose is actually a fish with wings. Soon other creatures arrive. A man-eating chipmunk, a long-legged frog a pig with a sharp, retractable nose, a lizard, and a caterpillar. Earl and the creatures have their sights set on Frubar. Mutant Aliens continues the cartoonish sex and violence as we saw in I Married a Strange Person, but this one feels like a 50s science fiction film, mixing the day the Earth stood still with the creature features, a la Killer Shrews and Night of the Lepus. As someone who grew up with these films, I got a nostalgia kick out of this film. You get the feeling of Plimpton's own cherishing of these classic films. The film came out on January 4, 2001, with 9-11 later that year. There is a sequence when Earl is sabotaged and Frubar uses patriotic imagery and music in a cynical manner, a ploy to play on people's nationalism and suckering money out of the public. Think of the many politicians who use 9-11 for their agenda, be it invading countries, surveilling the American citizenry. Plimpton is giving a clear poke in the eye to such shallow tactics. Joining Maureen McElheron for the music is Hank Bones. Bones was a session musician for the tune, but took on more responsibilities with McElheron with Mutant Aliens. The best track by far would be the gospel rock gem, You Can't Drag Race Jesus. You can't! You can't! Yeah. 
music score overall recalls the classic scores of Jerry Goldsmith and Bernard Herrmann. For much of the cast, this would be their only film. Daniel McComas, the voice of Earl Jensen, Francine Lobis, the voice of Josie, and George Kasdan, the voice of Dr. Frubar. This film is their only credit. Kasdan stood out with his comedically evil take on Frubar. Mutant Aliens is a fun, violent homage to classic science fiction. This is another one where the animation will keep the viewer interested in the goings-ons. Physical copies are still available on the Plimpton store, as well as on Amazon. centers on a 1950s love triangle between the school stud Rod, his gal Cherry, and the new student Spud. Spud accidentally hits Rod's car and unintentionally mocks Cherry. He is forced into servitude for Cherry, but Cherry starts to become attracted to Spud from his loyalty. This angers Rod, making him furious when Cherry takes Spud out to the prom. On the night of the prom, Rod runs Spud and Cherry off the road and into a lake. They drown while Rod tries to keep their murder under the assumption it was an accident. A year later, Spud and Cherry come back from the dead for their place as the prom king and queen. Hair High is a horror movie inspired by films like Carrie, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, uh, EC Comics, A Tale of Love Torn by Another's Jealousy, Supernatural Fueled Revenge. The 1950s sound is intact thanks to the collaboration of Hank Bones and Maureen Miguel Haran. You get a mix of rock, blues, and even some rockabilly. This is the most star-studded cast you will ever see in a Plimpton film. Thanks to Martha Plimpton of Goonies fame, a distant relative of Bill, she was able to bring in some of her colleagues. You have Keith Carradine, David Carradine, Sarah Silverman, Beverly D'Angelo, Justin Long, Tom Noonan, and Simpsons creator Matt Groening. Compared to the cast of his previous films, Plimpton was impressed with how quickly the professional actors understood their characters. Hair High tells a simple story of love and vengeance from beyond the grave with Plimpton's signature style of animation. There is a cast that elevates the material, giving it immense credibility. There are copies on Amazon priced at over $30, but buying directly from Plimpton's store, the DVD only costs $15. A well worth investment. Someday the silver moon and I will go to dreamland I will close my eyes and wake up there in dreamland But tell me who will put flowers on a flower's grave is the protagonist of the film, despite being vain and antisocial. 
He is also a drunkard and a gun salesman. One morning, in a Kafkaesque turn, he wakes up with a pair of angels on his back. His decisions, often malicious in intention, are now controlled by the wings and he is forced to make good choices. He tries to hide them or cut them off, yet they grow back or pop out of his embarrassment. The wings on his back have made him a target. Two antagonists in particular, a doctor and a salesman, try to get the wings for themselves. Angel must save himself and keep these publicity seekers at bay. The crude in this film is limited. A change of pace from the previous Plimpton films. It is still a very funny movie. There was a lot of drama leaving me stunned and in awe of Plimpton's work here. After crazy cult films like I Married a Strange Person and Mutant Aliens, Idiots and Angels stands out among them. The signature style of Plimpton using colored pencils has been fine-tuned and aided by what seems like shades of charcoal. The characters have a normal appearance, which makes the comedy much more effective. The violence of the film is few and far between, but when it does happen, it gives those moments the needed feeling of impact. Dialogue is rare in this title, which recalls some of the avant-garde cinema of Europe. It also allows the music to develop a tone and the character of the film. Tom Waits uses that raspy voice of his, along with moody accompaniment. Pink Martini's contributions serve as a nice counter to Waits. This makes for a nice juxtaposition. Maureen McElheron and Hank Bones aren't as involved as in previous films. Both McElheron and Bones contribute individually. Meanwhile, Nicole Renault, Corey Allen Jackson, and Didier Carmier handle the musical score's responsibilities. Idiots and Angels marks an achievement for Bill Plimpton. He's made a film that makes you think as much as it makes you laugh. How Plimpton can follow up with this gem is something for viewers to chew on. Will he continue his trek down the experimental path? Well, I certainly hope so. If you enjoy unorthodoxy in your animation, Idiots and Angels is deserving of your attention. Don't even bother with finding decent priced copies on Amazon. Uh, just buy this film off the Plimpton store. visits a carnival. She goes to the bumper cars and after a mishap is rescued by Jake. Both of them immediately fall in love with each other. They become devoted as they move in together. You get an amusing baby sequence that seems right out of an old school MGM song and dance number. While working at a gas station, a woman tried to sneak her number to Jake behind her husband's back. Jake, loyal as ever to Ella, gives her number back in front of her husband, making the husband furious at the woman. There is also a flirtatious neighbor that tries to woo Jake, but fails. Ella and Jake visit a clothing store. While Ella is dressing, we see the woman from the gas station, who is an employee of the clothing store. She takes a photo of a naked Ella standing among male mannequins that could be mistaken for living men. Jake sees this photo and is heartbroken. Jake begins to cheat on Ella. Ella finds out and tries to have Jake killed. The only hope for Jake and Ella to get back together is a washed-up magician and his soul-transferring machine. Cheaton continues the arthouse style of Bill Plimpton after Idiots and Angels. It was a pleasant surprise to see James Hancock, friend of the show and host of Wrong Reel, listed as producer along with Matthew Modine, an actor who previously worked with Plimpton on the short Santa the Fascist years. Much like with Idiots and Angels, there is no dialogue. The animation tells the story. It feels like a silent movie with sound a la Delicatessen. Nicole Renaud, 
took over the musical duties and she gives the film a Parisian soundscape that gives a nice Euro flavor to the proceedings. There are a few Plimpton Easter eggs. The dog that envelops Ella is the same dog from the guard dog shorts. The record Jake plays for Ella is Your Face from the music video short of the same name. If you like Idiots and Angels, then you will like Cheatin' just as much, if not more. Plimpton shows us a great love story with an evolution of his color pencil style. Amazon DVDs go for over $25, but you can buy the Blu-ray off of the Plimpton store for $20. In all honesty, support this man by buying all the movies from his site directly. And that wraps up our look at the films of Bill Plimpton. Next, here is a new segment hosted by John and myself. 1983, what a year. Kenzie Lambert here, host for Mac in the Movies, joined as always by my good friend John Cleveland. Hi, everybody. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. This is not going to be the three tenors. Uh, we're actually going to go ahead and do a new segment. Uh, I guess we can call this What a Year, uh, because uh, what we're going to be doing like is we're... What's that? Is that, ooh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at uh, a specific year, and we're going to pick our top 10 films from that year. Perfect, perfect. I like that. I like the name. That was nice. <laughs> good touch yeah and uh for our first year we're gonna actually gonna go ahead and do our birth years uh which was 1983 uh and right. it turns out that there was actually a lot of good stuff that year yeah there was like i was surprised <laughs> yeah yeah uh all right uh so uh for the, the new segment we'll go ahead and we'll let john uh, start off with his uh tep 10 for 1983 all right uh there was uh first off i just want to throw a couple honorable mentions in there because there was a lot i was surprised at how many really really good ones there were um I want to give a shout out to uh, Strange Brew. It's a great mm. underrated comedy. Um, obviously, a Christmas story classic. Yep. Um, uh, for our wrestling fans out there, uh, my breakfast with Blassie. Oh, uh, nice yeah. Yep. Yeah, I didn't even. I trust me, I forgot about that. <laughs> um, the hunger for our horror fans was great, and um, of known unknown origin, which is the film that impressed the directors um, so much that that's what got Peter Weller the job as RoboCop. Nice and. Uh, Last but not least, uh, DC Cab, which is an, also an underrated comedy. Ah, uh, yeah, yep, yep. All right, yeah. yep. So, all right. Too many, too many honorable we'll, we'll move on to the <laughs> the meat and potatoes into the top ten. All right, number ten, The Outsiders. Mm. Most of us watched it in high school because we read the book. It's just, it's a classic. And if they tried to make that movie today, it would cost billions for how many. Oh, got the star power of that movie. Yeah, basically. The the cast of the Outsiders, at least the you know the the good gang. Actually, mm-hmm. I forget they're the Outsiders. You know, yeah. um, they almost all have Oscar nominations. <laughs> all twelve of them, or whatever. It's, it, it's <laughs> like, like it's the it's, it's like the Brad Pack Godfather. It's like you've got the the greatest actors of that yes. specific group in that movie. Yes crazy it's crazy good <laughs> and like it's one of those i remember in high school not loving so much mm-hmm. because you're in high school and you know your tastes are different yeah. but like i've watched it you know i think i watched it like three years ago and i'm like wow this is really just a great film and the book's amazing so oh yeah all right so now number 10 number nine uh not a film anyone's gonna call a great based on a great book or or anything like that but i i love it to death. lone wolf mcquade my favorite chuck norris movie all right it's uh, it's just fun if if you like Chuck Norris movies or those kind of like late seventies, early eighties kind of you know action films. It's so good. It's 
I put this up there in like the machismo level as like off the scale. You got like Conan the Barbarian, Die Hard, that kind of stuff. Lone Wolf Kid, he, there's a scene in the movie. I'm not going to ruin it. First off, the bad guy is David Carradine, which is awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like in the movie, there's a point where he gets shot and buried alive. And that really isn't a big problem for Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. Is this a canon uh, film? Uh, you know what? I think it is. Ah, uh, that makes it, sense. If it isn't a canon <laughs> film, it is still a canon film. Because if you know that production studio, you know what you're in for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure it actually is a canon film. But if it isn't, I could just say it and I, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't question wrong. it. Look at the film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Number eight, uh, because it had to be on the list somewhere. It's just, uh, it's a classic. Uh, Videodrome. Oh, Cronenberg. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Yeah. I, I'll be honest with you. When I actually wrote the list, like I, I just, I, I actually had to go through, uh, and, and I want you to know the work I put into this. <laughs> I actually went through on IMDb as the list of all 3,400 movies that were released in 1983. Jeez. And I went through them all. <laughs> I, it, it's impressive I, how many movies are made every I year. Just did, I just did Wikipedia, uh, and they only have like maybe like a, maybe a hundred films for 1983. Oh, no, I, I didn't no. think of going for it. I didn't go that far. No, there, were, there were literally 3,400 movies released that year. Now, obviously, that, there, that takes into a lot of Bollywood films and a lot of stuff like that. But mm-hmm. either way, there was a lot on this list and other in my honorable mentions. And some I, I didn't even list that like I didn't know were made that year. Videodrome, however, is the number one. When I first wrote this list, that was my number one because I knew it was made in 1983 because mm. that movie oozes 80s <laughs> i love it to death it's so if you don't know about videodrome watch videodrome I, i'm not going to try to explain it to you uh, you know we are the new flesh is all i'm going to say uh we've got uh coked out james woods and you got deborah harry from <laughs> blondie and that's yeah it's crazy in cronenberg yeah and i don't know what else i can say because if you don't know what those things are going to add up to I got nothing for you. <laughs> All right. Uh, keeping of the surreal, let's say horror, uh, moving on to my number seven, an incredibly highly underrated horror film, The Keep. Mm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so it's, good. It's like what? Supernatural forces versus Nazis. And you've got like Ian McKellen before he was anybody in this movie. Yes. Yes. It's such a great film. It's so atmospheric. Um, for those who, who have never seen it or who love atmospheric films, I highly suggest it. I can never speak highly. There's even an effect in the film. I'm not going to even talk about it because I don't want to ruin it and mm-hmm. really anything other than what Mac just said is, yes, it's supernatural forces versus Nazis. Um, is there's an effect with a, cr- I'll say a creature or an entity in the film that like how they do it, I, I, I had to do research to figure out how they did it because it was so cool involving smoke in and stuff. It's just it's just amazing effect. But but yeah, no, highly suggest if you've never seen it. I assume most of my horror fans out there have seen it because it's it's a it's a low key classic, but it is a classic. And as much as I love right. Goblin, I gotta say that Tangerine Dream score. Beautiful stuff. Oh yeah, no, there it's the movie that proved to me that Tangerine Dream was something I needed to look into. Mm-hmm. Their stuff was, yeah, their work on it is next level. I, you're right. I think that the only person who holds a candle to that, to their score for that, and obviously their score from a couple other things, is is Goblin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Also, I'd like to, just before we move on, I would like to point out, I would love a remake of The Keep if it was done well. Yeah. We'll, yeah, I'll give you we'll, that. Yeah, I, I just think that it it, it has, I would say, a room for improvement. It just, I'd like to see an updated version of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Number six, again, this is a, one of those that just has to be on the list somewhere. I was going to have it as number 10, but I honestly, the, the older I get, the I honestly think the better this movie gets. Scarface. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's, it's just, it's arguably one of the, no, it's not arguably, it's one of the greatest remakes of all time. Yeah. It just is. And it's, it, it's, it's one of those movies I always point out when people like, harp on actors who were cast in like for for 
maybe not ethnicities, but at least for parts that maybe they shouldn't have been cast for. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the call out I can make easy is like, why did they cast a Scottish a Sean Connery for an Russian sub commander when he refused to do a <laughs> Russian accent? Um, I always point out like, do you, do you think Scarface was cool that they cast an Italian as a Cuban? Like people forget that Chino's not in any way Cuban or Latino at all. He's just Italian. Uh, and that movie got but some no heat when they tried to film it in Florida. The, the Cubans in Florida hated the fact yeah. that they were producing this movie, so they had to shoot it in Los Angeles mm-hmm. instead. Yep, yep. Oh, there's a lot of crazy stuff that went on behind the scenes of that one. <laughs> yeah, but no, classic. Everyone's seen Scarface. If you haven't seen Scarface, like, I know people that don't even like movies who have seen Scarface. Like, everyone's <laughs> seen it. So um, I, I'm not going to go on. It's an amazing movie. One of the best movies of the of the 80s, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Great, great film. Great film. All right. Top five, cut it in half. Now, these are probably not going to be everyone, anyone's per se favorites. I think these are just really like personal favorites for various reasons for me. Mm-hmm. But number five is Fire and Ice. It's a Rankin Bass, Fire and Ice. Oh, uh, uh, animated? It's just, yeah, it's that, it, well, it's not, it's that, um, what do you call it? That, that very specific style where they draw over live actors. Oh, uh, Rotos, Rotos that Rankin Bass did for like the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like rotoscoping, like like they did for uh, Scanner Darkly, and yeah, kind of, yeah, exactly. Obviously, that was an older version, but yeah, no, I love this. It was one of the first like fantasy films that I remember as a kid, really, really enjoying. Probably a little bit too graphic for children, but eh, it is what it is. Um, but no, great. If you love D anD D, if you love fantasy, and you love Rankin Bass's style, man, you gotta you gotta watch Fire and Ice. It's so very very cool. It's it's very visually compelling, if for no other reason I can say. It's right. uh, it's very visually compelling. But I loved it as a kid, so, you know, it's got to be on my list. Hmm. Number four, one of the greatest comedies of all time, Trading Places. Ah, okay. Yep, yep. And I, I stand behind that statement. Because <laughs> not only is it one of the best comedies of all time, it gets better every year. Because <laughs> it's just about, you know, corporate America... You know, the quote unquote one percent trying to screw people over and then those people mm-hmm. coming back and screwing them over and giving an incredibly topical moment. Yeah. Manipulation uh, of uh, yeah. stock prices to do so. <laughs> uh free for me. Trading but not places for the... if it gets redone. Yes. If trading places gets redone, I can guarantee it's gonna be about uh Reddit. The GameStop and, and AMC, yeah, Wall Street Bets. Guarantee yeah. It. Yep. So but I Dan Aykroyd in what I'm boldly going to say is his third best role. And uh, am I going to say third best role? Yeah, probably third best role. Mm-hmm. Blues Brothers and Ghostbusters probably yeah. beat it out. But very, very good. Uh, very. What's that? And Eddie Murphy just absolutely killing it. Oh, yes. And, and of course, and Eddie Murphy in, again, probably his second or third best role. I mean, yeah. I like Golden Child and I love I love me some coming to America. But but <laughs> but then I have to think like he's got some other newer stuff, too. But either way, not that sidetrack. But no, Trading Places is two amazing comedians working together in a story that, again, the older I get, the more relevant it is, sadly. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Such a such a good movie. Also, uh, for any of you uh, young men out there who have seen it, you know it involves a very impressive uh, scene with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. That uh, that all the men in day, hey, some of the women in the audience are probably remember very fondly. <laughs> so, uh, love that movie. All right, top three. Uh, uh, this is probably. I don't want to say he's my least known. I feel like Fire and Ice probably was my less known movie on the, or maybe Lone Wolf and Cade. But this is another sleeper one that I know I'm usually the first person to introduce this to somebody. Blue Thunder. Uh, About the, the, uh, the attack helicopter. Yes. Yep. And uh, there's, it's so, it's such a, such an awesome movie. Um, The thing I love most about it is if you watch Blue Thunder, it's about generally, uh, the military, uh, a company makes this really awesome helicopter to sell to, or the government makes this really awesome helicopter to sell to police forces for, you know, for use in urban pacification and various other things. Well, it turns out the whole plan is to actually use it to, like, a new senator is going to come out, and once they're in use, he's going to start using it to crack down on, like, any kind of subversion. So, like, basically, the go- the big corporation that made that and the government are going to work together to use this helicopter 
if it rolls out across the the country to control the populace. So weirdly also timely topical <laughs> yeah. and timely statement. But the the thing about Blue Thunder is is if you watch it, the 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 action scenes in this movie could never be filmed today. They would all just be CGI because there's a lot of action scene in this movie where they just fly helicopters through a major American city. (laughs) Very close to buildings doing some ridiculously dangerous stunts that you would never get uh, away away with today. Also, the thing I I love, uh, I don't want to say best, but it's a really cool factoid about this movie. Mm -hmm. They designed, the art department for the movie designed this helicopter based on all these cool things. And it was in the earlier 80s too, obviously. So they even had a cool thing where wherever the pilot was looking with his hel- this special helmet he was wearing, the mm-hmm. gun on the front, the mini gun on the front would look. Ah. So after the movie came out, the Department of Defense contacted the production team because they wanted to know where they got their plans for the <laughs> Apache helicopter. <laughs> the Apache had not yet been released and they didn't know how somebody just came up with all the ideas, for, a lot of the ideas for the Apache before it. And the Apache was still in like early stages of production. It is rumored that the government took ideas from Blue Thunder and adapted them to the Apache. Ah, I can see that. And it's not uh, confirmed. Well, I was going to say it's not confirmed, mind you, mm-hmm. but it's suspect. So, and, and obviously, uh, also the acting in the movie is just oh, yeah. way better than it needs to be. Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> Michael McDowell is the bad guy. He's Michael McDowell. Of course, he's the bad guy. Uh, Roy Schneider is the, the good guy. And I would say one of his best performances in a career of great performances. And so. I believe, wasn't it Dan O'Bannon who wrote it? Like the guy who did Alien and Return to the Living Dead. So, yeah, this is a guy who always kind of had his finger on the pulse as far as tapping into paranoia or, you know, fears of the masses. Oh yeah, I think it's it's just one of those I uh, I love showing people because it's such a like every time I show it to somebody they love it and they're like how did I never see this this is so an eighties like action movie and I'm like <laughs> I have it's one of those things man you gotta you gotta know somebody to know somebody sometimes but Blue yep. Thunder if you like if you like dog fighting and helicopter movies it is in my opinion the quintessential helicopter movie it's kind of a niche thing admittedly but it's there. <laughs> All right, number two. Well, number two and number one are a little interchangeable, and they're very similar films because they're both Stephen King movies. All right. Because, in my opinion, the man just owned a large swath of horror in the 80s. So number two is The Dead Zone. All right, yep. Good good stuff. Such an amazing atmospheric horror film. Every time I watch it, it gets better. Every... Everything about the movie is just amazing. It's probably got one of the best psychic characters in any film I've ever seen. And somehow Christopher Walken, like he funnels, he it's Christopher Walken before he was a parody, I don't, a parody of himself. Be, you know, like I, and I hate to say it that way because I love me some Christopher Walken. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But this is when he was still a great actor as opposed to, I sadly have to say a, par- a, a somewhat of a parody of himself, which kudos for him. I wish I could be a parody of myself and get paid for it. <laughs> so kudos. And he's, you know, but this is, he's chilling at some points in this movie. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. And yet so him, sympathetic uh, as well. So sympathetic. And then also weirdly in a parallel to Sheen, Martin Sheen, yeah. president <laughs> is disturbingly, creepy and evil (laughs) which also sadly is a wow 1983 is really just told us what was coming didn't it Mm -hmm. wow all right on a not a parallel haha yes it is crap all right so number one (laughs) one of my favorite horror movies of all time christine Mm. i love me it's so i will say it's probably a little too long that's my only critique of the film but everything about that movie is amazing. The special effects of the car, the kills are awesome. The idea behind it's great. I, I I remember when I first watched that movie. I watched the lead and I go, I could beat that kid up. He's not. This is oh yeah, Keith Gordon isn't going to be good. Yep. Yeah, this isn't going to work. By the end of the film, I completely agree that that man is a psychotic menace, <laughs> and what the car has done to him, or he's done to the car. The symbiosis there is beautiful. Yeah, and, and it's yeah. still that transformation scene. 
show show me that scene to this day is one of the best scenes in all of horror. I literally put that in my top five best scenes of horror under only surpassed by things like the thing stuff like that. Like that scene's amazing. And it's again, it's just so atmospheric. It's such a good movie. And I say that it, it, it's weirdly. Oh, it's, it's not actually uh, like modern day. Oh wait, no, we have uh, cars that basically are sentient now. Oh shit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Self-driving. <laughs> yep. So, so again, if they, re- if they remade Christine, it would just be a Tesla. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, so that's my top ten. A lot of horror, which, uh, if yeah. you know me, shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, good selections all around. Yeah, thank you, thank you. All what right, you? all right for my uh, top ten picks. But first, my honorable mentions. I had yep. DC Cab as an honorable mention as well. Uh, I just had to all put right. that out there, just because you look at the the comedic talent in that film yeah. is just um, impressive for its time. Mr. T, Gary Busey. What else do I need to sell you on? No, Bill Maher too. When he was uh, yeah. before, before he dipped heavily into politics, but still. Yep. Yep. All right, uh, my number ten. Uh, it is uh, one of my favorite bad movies and one of my favorite MST3K episodes: Warrior of the Lost World, with the paper chase guy. <laughs> the paper chase guy. <laughs> guy that looks like he just came from the dentist office all the time. Yep. Uh, you also got Fred the Hammer Williamson and Donald Pleasance. So. Donald slumming it up as always. Yep. Uh, and uh, let's see. Next one. Number nine. Christine was my number nine. Uh, just because. Oh, right. Yep. Uh, it is just a, a, a. I wouldn't say it's probably the greatest adaptation, but John Carpenter just knows how to take someone else's source material and give it his own vision. Of course. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, he's just such a great director. And, and that music score. And King. Oh, that music story. Car- yeah. No, think about it. Carpenter and King. How are you? How is it possible to fail? It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Nope. All right, my number eight, Sleepaway Camp. Really? Yep. Number eight. Wow. Yeah, that's bold. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm probably no more as an exploitation person, but uh, just the the mainstream stuff from 1983 is just too too strong to ignore. Yeah, no, you're not wrong in that ending. Mm-hmm. Boy, that ending. Yeah. <laughs> And the fact that you've got kids being murdered too, which is even yeah. taboo even for that time, and uh, yeah. yeah, it took the it definitely took that uh, the template that uh, Friday the Thirteenth set and pushed it even further. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Number seven, The Outsiders. Uh, as we've stated before previously, just you could not make this movie today without going ridiculously over budget and just yeah. the talent. And it's it's a story that I think. Even now, I think it's still required reading in school. So even now, people today are still reading this book, and they have this movie to go to, which I think is still very impressive. I think it's a, it, to some degree it's a timeless story. Yeah, I think that's really what holds holds it together so well. So yeah, definitely. And I, again, I loved it too. <laughs> Number six, I had to go with a Christmas story, uh, just because this is a movie I grew up with. You know, you'll shoot your eye out, and I just have a soft spot for Darren McGavin. He just does such a great job in this film as the oh, old yeah, man. No. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's one of cinema's best dads. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, number five, National Lampoon's Vacation. Uh, just not only just the Lindsey Buckingham song, but you got Chevy Chase before he, you know, just became a total asshole as a, as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> and directed by Harold Ramis. Yep. Yeah. It almost was on my honorable mentions. It almost was there, but I I actually prefer later ones more. Yeah. Yeah. I actually kind of prefer. I actually. I know this is going to be blasphemy, but I actually kind of prefer Vegas Vacation over over the original Vacation. I I'm right there with you. Christmas Vacation is still the best. I, yeah. I've said it a thousand times, but yeah, no, I I'm a fan of Vegas Vacation. I don't I, I don't think uh, I don't think you got anything to worry about. People people love that movie. Yeah. Uh, number four, the big one, Scarface. Uh, just yeah. like, every time I hear someone say, "Oh, remakes are terrible," it's like, "Oh, so you hate Scarface?" And it's yeah. like, "Yep." It, people don't even know it's a remake that's the thing it's so it was so revolutionary that (laughs) people just ignored the original and in grand theft auto 3 there was a radio station that was just nothing but the scarface soundtrack and that was pretty much the only radio station (laughs) i listened to in that game uh i love uh someday somebody is going to realize that the radio stations in that car might have been the peak of human civilization Playing Grand Theft Auto and listening to those radio stations, you realized mm-hmm. you were this was as high as it's going to get. It's pretty much all downhill from here. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all 
number <laughs> uh, number th- okay now we're in the big three number three yeah. the keep was my number three yes. uh, just uh just a great creepy ghost story uh with uh ian mckellen's scott glenn of all people is mesmerizing in this movie oh good scott glenn is such an underrated actor mm-hmm. he just uh, brings this energy this weird uh, yeah. energy all right uh, number two return of the jedi uh just it people always harp on this movie but i think it at least draws the trilogy to a satisfying conclusion it just gives us the ending that i felt the other trilogies just couldn't give us I, well as obviously as time goes on i feel that the nostalgia for the original three is only going to grow not only because they're quote-unquote the originals but because and I'm not a, let's be clear here, folks, I, in case you haven't ever heard me say so, I'm actually not a giant fan of Star Wars. I think they're only okay. I think they're vastly blown out of proportion of their what they achieved. But I will say the first three are clearly the best three. Mm-hmm. The, the material was never handled as well. Yep. So I think you're right. I think that that for for what people might say is bad about that movie, it's still the best end of any of the trilogies. And once in a while, I still find my find myself humming parts of the John Williams score. Like, you know, the, the theme for the Ewoks is one of those little earworms that gets you, like, out of nowhere. I just really just wanted them to eat them. I think the Ewoks <laughs> just eat them. I mean, think about that. For all you Star Wars fans out there, I want you to go. That's your homework for tonight. Go home and think about, wouldn't the world have been weird if the Ewoks had not listened to C-3PO and just ate everyone? <laughs> think about that. Mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> and my number one, The Dead Zone, starring Christopher yes. Walken and directed by David Cronenberg. It's it's body horror, but it's not the physical being body horror. It's the yeah. mental body horror, mm-hmm. which is such a dramatic change of pace. And again, like the the more I think about it, and like Sheen is probably one of the greatest actors of all time. Yep. And just some of the weird stuff in here, too. Like, you got that ritualistic suicide in the bathtub with a mm-hmm. pair of scissors. And oh. you just see what you need to see. And your yeah. mind just fills in the blanks. And little things like when he just bumps into the mom and she knew. Like, mm-hmm. little things like that. It's just such... That is storytelling on a... on. That's when you know you're a great storyteller. When little things like that are added to the film aren't extra wastes of time and wastes of space or a way to get another kill in. That is character development. Mm-hmm. And just it adds a whole nother depth to the horror. It's amazing. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, just uh, my favorite Cronenberg film, my favorite Stephen King film, uh, and probably my favorite Christopher Walken film. It just it just tops so many like other little mm-hmm. criteria that it's just uh, such a good good movie. Ooh, I think we're gonna have to do a top ten Stephen King list at some time. Yeah, as I mean, adaptation. I, ignoring that, I think we. Yeah, I think ignoring that we just kind of gave or tipped our hand a bit, but I, yeah. I definitely would like to see that list. Mm-hmm. All right, so that was our list for 1983. Uh, feel free to tell us what some of your selections are, or if there's any years in particular you want us to cover, feel free to let us know. Yeah, I mean, I'll chew through all thousands and thousands on IMDb. I will, I will literally find every Bollywood film that was released in the year. Bring it on. And uh, <laughs> my, uh, you have my sympathy. <laughs> And on that note, uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off on this episode. Uh, next time, we're probably going to go ahead and actually tackle uh, the year 1995, which uh, I think often gets a, a bum rap, uh, especially if you're a wrestling fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah, I look forward to it. All right. So until next time, this is uh, Mackenzie Lambert and John Cleveland. Have a good day, folks. Bye. Thanks for listening. That completes this episode of Mac in the Movies. Next time, we will be taking a look at the cult classic TV series, Cold Jack the Night Stalker, starring Darren McGavin and Simon Oakland. I'll be talking about the origins of the show and share my top five episodes of the series. That episode will drop on Friday, March 26th. If you like this content and would like to see the program grow, a one-time donation via PayPal or Venmo would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I stream on Twitch. I'm still playing Wasteland 3 and Dead Island. Sundays are still social gaming night with the Jackbox series. You can check out my schedule on my Twitch channel. Feel free to join in sometime. All of that in the description box below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert from Making the Movies, signing off.